Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your host, Dr. Karen Litzy, owner of Karen Litzy Physical Therapy, a concierge practice located in the heart of New York City. Now, in today's episode, we are talking about the importance of trust in the world and the lack of trust in the world. So I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Daryl Stickle. Daryl is one of the world's leading experts on trust with over 20 years of experience, his PhD building trust in hostile environments from Duke University, established him as a global leader for governments, businesses, and NGOs on practical approaches to building trust. He has worked for McKinsey and Company in their Toronto office, as well as advised the Canadian military on trust building in Afghanistan. He has served on faculty for the Luxembourg School of Business and the Center for Effective Organizations at the University of Southern California, and recently completed his book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. His contribution to the field of trust has been recognized by his nomination to the Top Thought Leaders on Trust by Trust Across America, Trust Around the World. So today, we talk about the motivating factors behind his PhD studies, um, how his upbringing in a small town, which I can totally relate to, where community support uh, was essential and how you build trust in that. And we also talk about building trust in your business. So if you are a business owner, if you are a healthcare practitioner, this episode is going to be so right up your alley because building trust in your business, whether it's with your employees or with your customers, is everything. So a big thank you to Daryl for coming onto the program and everyone enjoy today's episode. Hey, Daryl, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on to talk all about trust, which is something in this world that people don't seem to have a lot of these days. So I'm happy to have you on to talk about it. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Karen. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. And like I said, trust is something that nowadays people don't have a lot of. They don't have a lot of trust in their political figures. There's not a lot of trust in teachers. There's not a lot of trust in the medical world. So when you did your PhD around the topic of trust, what motivated you to focus on that topic? So I started out, I, I grew up in a small town in Northern Canada called Fort St. John. And there was a a sense the town was fairly isolated. Winters were hostile. There was a sense of community there, you know, that people had to help each other. And um, if you could help, you should. And so I grew up with that mindset. And then I had a series of mishaps and, and misfortune and struggles. And um, I developed a fairly strong sense of empathy for others. And so I found myself, you know, I, I moved from there because everyone should move from there um, to Victoria, British Columbia. Okay. And I'd find myself sitting on the bus and people would just sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. You know, and, and so for some reason, complete strangers would open up to me. And I thought to myself, like, why is this happening? 
And second, if this is going to keep happening, maybe I should get paid for this. And so I started down a path towards clinical psychology. I was working with street kids and troubled teens and working on crisis lines and with families in, in turmoil. And I reached a spot where I realized a lot of these folks are doing the best they can. And and you can see the path forward for them, but they can't take it. And this is going to drive me insane if I spend the rest of my life doing this. And so I transitioned into public administration. I was doing a master's degree in public admin. I was working in native land claims. And they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, man, that is a good question. Very good question. And so I went to Duke, and I wanted to look at building trust in hostile environments. And so that's that's why I decided to focus on that. I ended up having, you know, two people showed up at Duke around the same time I did who were considered leading academics on the topic. And so it almost felt like in retrospect that it was meant to happen, mm-hmm. you know, and they were on my committee. It was uh, Sim Sitkin and Karen Cook. And when I finished, they sat me down and they said, okay, so when you first came to us, we we actually had a conversation with each other and we said, too big, too complicated. He never solves it. We'll give him six months. He'll come crawling back to us. We'll let him chip off a little piece of this, and that'll be his thesis. Six months in, you were so far beyond us, we couldn't help anymore. All we could do is sit and watch. And here we are two years later. We think you've solved it. And so it's been a passion of mine for a long time. And I've spent the last, you know, I went to work for McKinsey and Company. They they said, well, you've got good client hands. Let's send you to the worst places possible. Um and so I'd find myself working in places where clients really didn't want us to be there, where there'd been strikes, where there was going to be, you know, uh, staff reductions, just anywhere that it was a challenge. And so I was getting to apply the concepts that I had studied. And then I was injured in a car accident. I ended up with post-concussion syndrome. Mm. And I couldn't work 80 hours a week anymore. Um, and I, you know, there was a, a real time of struggle. And so eventually I started back and started my little company called Trust Unlimited. And I started working with companies trying to help them figure out what trust was and how it worked and most importantly, how to build it. And and that's what I've done for the last 20 years. Amazing. Now, <clears throat> as you were, you know, talking about your, your interest in trust what did you what did you find? So what was it you had said when you were at Duke? They said, oh, I think you got it. What did you get? So I started looking at trust from multiple perspectives. And I was a bit of an oddball because, you know, most academics are sort of more inclined to one pure discipline or another. <clears throat> so they're psychologists or sociologists or economists or political scientists. They tend to have a focus. And I actually had multiple lenses that I used to look at problems. And so I started looking at the trust literature and I realized, you know, the the definition for trust is a willingness to be vulnerable when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. That means there's an element of uncertainty and vulnerability in that definition, but none of the work I was looking at actually included elements of vulnerability. 
And so it was treating trust like a dichotomous variable, like it was either present or absent. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm going to say something. Your your listeners are all going to be listening to this, and they're going to go, "Duh!" After I say it, but we trust some people more than others, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, but but the literature doesn't say that, right? It doesn't acknowledge that because it doesn't include vulnerability. And so, it, is it that it doesn't? see trust as on a spectrum it's either you trust or you don't versus i trust this person more or less than the person sitting next to them yeah and and as bizarre as that sounds once i've said it that's where most of the literature seems to sit Mm. and and as i was going through this i looked and i I said okay so almost all this literature is is looking at uncertainty and in fact it's all looking at a specific type of uncertainty and so for me when we decide to trust someone we ask ourselves two fundamental questions the first is how likely am i to be harmed which is perceived uncertainty Mm. and the second question is if i'm harmed how bad is it going to hurt which is perceived vulnerability and those combined what's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk and we each have a threshold of risk that we can tolerate if we go beyond that threshold we don't trust If we're beneath it, then we do. And so building trust is actually fairly simple. It's where does uncertainty come from? How do we take steps to reduce it? Where do these perceptions of vulnerability come from? And how do we take steps to help people manage those? And so once I had framed it in that way, it became a formula, right? And we could start talking about the individual elements of uncertainty, but we could also talk about the context, right? Because you work in healthcare. Yes. So people go into a doctor's office. The doctor says, take off your clothes. And you do. I've right. tried that. I've tried that in other places. <laughs> it doesn't. It's a, it, it, so, so if you go to like McDonald's and order a cheeseburger and they say, take off your clothes, you're not going to do it. Not as often. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, I mean, right situation, maybe, but um <laughs> And, and if we just took that example, we had the same two people dressed exactly the same, and we moved the setting from a doctor's office to a gas station restroom. Mm-hmm. It goes from credible to creepy in a heartbeat. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> totally. Right? And you know, I don't know if you watch John Mulaney, but in his latest special, he talked about this. You know, he talks about his drug addiction. And during that, He was going to, he went to go see a doctor that someone recommended and he was like in his apartment, like sitting in his kitchen. And the doctor said, oh, could you go ahead and take your shirt off? And he was like, I don't, I don't don't know. Yeah. This feels a bit odd. Yeah. 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 Like, did I knock on the right door? Right. (laughs) Right. Still a doctor, but now you're at a a kitchen table versus a doctor's office. And it was completely different. And so this element of context hadn't really been included in the literature. And it, it meant that we couldn't explain why we trust some people without knowing anything about them. Right. Because when I mm-hmm. ask people, who do you trust? They give me these close, tight personal relationships, best friend, mm-hmm. spouse, sibling, parents. But we trust people all the time. Right. You go to a restaurant, you cross the street, you you get on an airplane. You believe the pilots made it through all 12 steps of that substance abuse program. Oh, right. Right. So, oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah so, so, so trust is a social lubricant that allows societies to function. Mm-hmm. It allows us to engage the world without having to monitor everyone's behavior. And, and so 
we needed to understand context and how it had an impact on willingness to trust or not. And so that was the uncertainty level. And then we talked about vulnerability. You know, what what do people feel is at stake and how do they value it? And I started to think of these things as levers. Mm -hmm. So as an individual, I can build trust with you if I pull three levers. One of them is benevolence. Do I have your best interest at heart? One of them is integrity. Do my actions align with the values that I express? And do I follow through on my promises? And the last is ability. Do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And then we can also pull the lever in context, right? I can start to explain my setting so it gets easier and easier for you to predict what I'm going to do, how I'm going to behave. Mm -hmm. And so those are four of the levers in my model. And then there's two levers in vulnerability. So what's at stake and how do I value it? And then after we've made that trust decision, we have perceived outcomes. And we all interpret the world through stories. And so we may perceive the outcome as successful or a failure, and we attribute the credit or the blame of that to the other party. And so there's a couple more levers that we can look at. And you and I can have exactly the same experience, different narratives, different perceptions of whether that was a good outcome or not. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle of all this, so that updates the next time we interact with someone, right? In the middle of all this is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike somebody else. So 99% of the trust literature treats people like rational actors. And if you've ever met people, you know, we're not. Yeah. People are not, not all people are rational actors. Not all of them. No. In fact, I, very I, I few was, of them. I was going to say, in fact, it's very few. It's right. very few. And uh, I have a question. Something just popped into my head as you were talking about um, that perceived uncertainty, benevolence, integrity, and ability, and do we like or dislike? And this may be going in a way topic that we don't even want to touch on. If it is, just be like, save it for another time. So but I was watching a show on cults and how cults form. Okay. So people put a lot of trust in the leaders of, of a cult, whether it be in Jonestown or Waco or... Uh, and so... How, I'm sure these principles are at work because people really trust those leaders, obviously with their lives. Right. And so is that like an extreme trust view or is that a normal trust view? Well, so when we start seeing things like cults and cults of personality, mm -hmm. the challenge that we face, and this is why, you know, we see, extreme conflict that seems to be so resilient mm -hmm. and this is this is what got to trust in hostile environments is those emotional states become so overpowering and the more emotional we become the less rational we are oh that makes sense and the challenge that we face is that all the trust literature is cognitive rash, rational talking about uncertainty and we've got this profoundly emotional issue mm -hmm. right and so whatever side of the Trump debate you're on, there's a whole subset of people saying, why aren't the other people listening to reason? Because it's an emotional situation. Mm -hmm. And so when we approach it from a rational perspective, we don't make a dent. Right. And so we need to reset those emotional states first. 
and get to a place where some of those rational approaches will actually work. And so, you know, when I started, and that's, you know, there's 10 levers that I think about, four are in uncertainty, two are in vulnerability, two are in perceived outcomes, and two are in emotional states. Mm -hmm. And we all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others, right? And so those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull. Usually it's the ability lever, right? So I have this much experience, these kinds of credentials, this education, this much, this many people. Mm -hmm. Those who are better have multiple levers that they pull. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one, right? So they can see where the gap is. Oh, I'm trying to pull the ability lever, but you're really concerned about whether I have your best interest at heart or not. So I miss. And so I need to think about how do I pull the benevolence lever to close that gap. Right. So it's all about self being, well, being self-aware and being very much aware of the state of people around you and then having the ability internally to say, mm, well, that one fell flat. So let me try and do this one instead and let's see right. what happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. So overwhelmingly what I do is I show people the levers. I talk them through how to pull them and then I get them to practice. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of my favorite levers is benevolence. This notion that you've got my best interest at heart. And I'll, when I work with families, I'll, I'll say, how many of you here have your kid's best interest at heart? And you know, like you could, Everyone, I'm assuming, is raising their hand. Everyone raises yeah. their hand. Right. Yeah. And then you turn the question and you say, how many of your kids would say that? Mm. And it's about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. So if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, mm -hmm. then how do we show benevolence as a leader or as a colleague or as a therapist or as a treatment professional? Right. So in the, in the healthcare setting, which is where I work and where I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast are, how do we uh, allow people to, or how do we get that we want, we have their best interests at heart? How do we, right. how do we have that interaction with our patient? Because I've had a lot of patients who have come in and been like, I'm only here because the doctor told me to. Right. I'm here because the doctor or the insurance company or um, my, or my, my spouse or my partner or my mom or my dad or, you know, and it's a hands are crossed and this so, isn't going to work. Right. And so a lot of times we do things that we think are in people's best interest, but they don't land that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yes, and, yes, yes. Okay. And so what we actually need to do is include them in the conversation right? To find out, well, what does success look like for you? What are your best interests? How do I help you get there? Oh, you want your stepmother to stop bugging you about this? Well, here's some exercises you can show her just to shut her up. And, you know, so one of the things that I do is I, I will, because I systematically go through the different levers you know, that's what I did in my book. That's what I do in my mm -hmm. master class. That's what I do in my regular courses and my coaching. Every every time I show people, here's what benevolence is. Now, here's the conversation you're going to have. And here's how you pull the lever. And so I include a set of questions that people can ask. But the example of the conversation I give is, is the follow-up. You're going to go to someone, and I encourage you to try this with someone. 
you're going to go to someone you're going to say, I heard this guy, Daryl, and he seems like a bit of a Yahoo, but he was talking about trust. And he said that benevolence is really important. That's, you know, the belief that you've got my best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? And the other person is going to go, oh God, yeah. And then you narrow the funnel a little bit and you say, well, have you ever had someone really have your back? What did they do? What did that look like? How did it feel? Now we're starting to prime them. They're starting to think about times when people really looked out for them. And we get curious, right? And then we say to them, what does success look like for you? So we narrow the funnel further and we say, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? Now we're creating an opportunity for transparency. And so we've included them in the conversation and they could say, you know what? If you could make this pain go away, my life would be better. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the whole objective here is to make that specific pain go away. I think it's from these different things. And the treatment approach that I take is the following. And so I'm going to try to make that pain go away. Alternatively, if you're in the healthcare system, instead of saying, I have a solution and I'm going to apply it, the possibility exists for you to say, you know, I've run into other people who've had a similar pain and they've had profound success with this other professional. Would you like me to make a referral or an introduction? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm aware that you're different from everyone else and there are things that I can try that we can see if it makes progress, but there are other approaches out there that may have a different effect on you than what I, than the one I do. And now all of a sudden you're showing them, I'm thinking about you. I'm not thinking about me or my billable hours or the insurance company breathing down my neck. I'm thinking about you. And so these are ways we start to demonstrate benevolence to other folks. And that's how we pull that lever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to try that. And I, I do ask the question, you know, what does uh, what does better look like for you? That's one of yeah. the questions that I ask people um, on intake paperwork and then on our first visit. Well, what does better look like for you? Because I don't right. want to assume I know what that is. Right. Maybe yeah. it's pain-free. Maybe it's not. Right. Well, and here's the thing is we're going to, I'm going to shift into some of the medical stuff now, if that's mm-hmm. okay. Sure. So when I was originally, I was in a car accident in 2001 ended up with post-concussion syndrome. It was a big lawsuit. Insurance companies were following me around. Uh, it took 20 years to resolve. And during that, they followed me periodically for 20 years. Followed and, you like physically followed you? Yeah. Had private detectives follow me. They would send video. Um, they, they sent people to my house uh, they had different people doing assessments on me constantly. Mm-hmm. They would, they would deny treatment and then I'd have to go through a whole process. And, um, and so I moved here to Victoria. I was living in Toronto when I was first injured and I moved to Victoria and a physiotherapist or a occupational therapist said to me, well, you know, I do work for the insurance company because they're the ones who pay the bills. And I said, that can't 
possibly be true because if you worked for the insurance company, I wouldn't be able to fire you, which is what I'm doing right now. Oh, right. And and she said, what? I said, you're never allowed in my home again. I said, because if you believe you work for the insurance company, you're not looking out for me. For your best interests. For my best interest. Mm-hmm. You're, you're invested in keeping them happy. And so I built a team around myself and I realized that I was willing to push myself harder to be more honest with my treatment team because I trusted them. Mm-hmm. So diagnosis became easier. It was okay if I had a good day and performed well. They weren't going to run to the insurance company and say, he's fine. Mm-hmm. Right? They were going to say, okay, let's see how tomorrow goes. And they were so manifestly focused on my best interest that I was willing to be incredibly open and honest with them. I was willing to push myself to through pain, do exercises that they recommended. The The treatment regime was much more successful than it would have been if trust levels were lower. Yeah, because you had... Uh, you had buy-in into your program and that therapeutic relationship was there. And I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but studies show that a stronger therapeutic relationship oftentimes ends in better outcomes. Right. Yeah. We see that in, in mental health therapy. We see Mm -hmm. that in, in hospital stays. We see, you know, so getting that right has a profound impact on how quickly the client recovers and how well they recover. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about this in terms of, okay, so you're a doctor. That's great. You've checked off the ability piece, but right. what about the integrity piece? What about the benevolence piece? What about the context? What are your interests? How do they align with mine? You know, who are you reporting to? Who do you believe you serve? Yeah. Yeah. That's a... That's a great example. And the ability part, when you're talking about healthcare, if you're going to see a healthcare provider, like you said, that's usually covered, right? I'm a physical therapist. I've gone to physical therapy school. Doctors go to medical school. Psychologists uh, get their psychology training or a PhD or MD. And so that ability ticks all the boxes. So you don't really have to pull that lever as much. Right. Right. So now you're looking at integrity and benevolence, or you're looking at what's in stake and how do I value it? Right. 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 And so, you know, I had a, now insurance companies are a challenge for me. They're a challenge Um, for everyone. Right. And so I had a, a medical professional who had a reputation for working for the insurance companies and finding what they wanted him to find. And they sent me to him to get an assessment. And he was the rudest, most arrogant being I think I've ever met. Yuck. And early in the conversation, he, he started, you know, asking me questions and I said, well, you know, it's actually more complicated than that. And he, after explaining to me how much smarter he was than me, um, he said, you know, be specific. You're an intelligent man. And I kind of went, okay. And so from then on, he got monosyllable answers. And later on he said, well, why didn't you mention that before? I said, you didn't ask. I said, you're only going to get answers to the questions that you ask from this point forward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I was 
getting ready to leave, he made some kind of comment. And I said, you know, I said, your reputation is that you do a lot of work for the insurance companies. You know, that's, that's the perception. He said, well, I like to think it's because I'm good. I said, yeah, that's not the perception. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, you give them what they want, which means that you're either morally bankrupt or you keep answering every question the same way. In which case, why not just get a photocopier? Well, and, and, and he actually was chastised somewhat. Um, his response was not nearly as negative as I anticipated. Um, but you, you run into people like that and you're like, I'm not telling you anything. Right. I need to protect myself from you. Right. And so, you know, when we treat, when we create this sort of adversarial process and when we, we don't ask the other person what success looks like for them or how they're feeling vulnerable. It's, you know, for me, I'd gone from working at McKinsey and company and, and being uh, fairly bright to all of a sudden really struggling. And the sense of self was being challenged mm -hmm. and my ability to function and my, you know, ability to cope were all challenged. And then to feel like people who were supposed to be on my side were actually not. Um, you can create just such a an incredibly positive or negative spiral in those settings because people, when they come to see you, are vulnerable. More vulnerable uh, than they'd like to be. A hundred percent, yes. And so we need to figure out how to reduce their uncertainty to actually serve them the best we can. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense. And it's more than just, it's, I never really looked at trust as being so robust. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think yeah. that I, I've always like, like you said earlier, that sort of dichotomy of like, you trust someone or you don't. Right. Right. It's black and white and why you don't, or, or, you know, some people, I just get a feeling I don't trust them. Right. We have those stereotypes, right? And, mm -hmm. and things that trigger us to right. either like past, or dislike someone else. And and it can be past experiences with someone like them. Yeah. Not necessarily that person. But I mean, I know I've said this. I know those people. I've been around those kinds of people before. I don't like them. I don't trust them. Right. Right. right? So you have sort of, it's almost like a muscle memory kind of. Exactly. And if we think about, so you mentioned the fact that trust levels are low. And in fact, when we look at the measurement from most of these scales, it tells us that it's the lowest we've ever measured. Mm. And let's think about the formula that I prescribed, right? Uncertainty times vulnerability equals risk. Well, our vulnerability hasn't really gone down, but our uncertainty is bouncing all over the place. Mm -hmm. We're not quite sure what the rules are anymore. There's people actively trying to discredit those that they don't agree with for short-term Mis gain. Misinformation, disinformation, social media, all of those things make for a lot of uncertainty in this world. And I mean, I, I always am thankful that I grew up in absence of social media. Right. Right. Or, or if you think about like looking back to someone like Walter Cronkite, right? The most trusted man in America. He's reading right. the news. Now, how many, if you were to poll Americans, how many of them trust all the newscasters? 
very few, right? Very Trust few. levels in media are really low. Right. So what and, happened? What happened in those 50 years? Well, we've, like I said, 50 years, 10, I don't 10 know. years, 10. Yeah. 10. So we've seen uncertainty escalate because of changes in technology, mm. because it's changes in norms and values. And I'm not saying anything positive or negative about the changes that we're seeing in, in terms of what people think is right or wrong or how they behave in the world but it means the rules are changing mm-hmm. and that promotes a great deal of uncertainty and it makes us hard to know what we can say and what we can't, who we can talk to and who we can't, right? how we can engage. Right. So if, if I, if I were to say something, Hey, I'm pro Trump, it would trigger a response and an emotional reaction. If I was to say, Hey, I'm anti-Trump, it, it would do the same, but with a different subset of the population. Mm-hmm. And so we try not to say anything. Right. We're we're not comfortable getting to know each other well enough to actually have these deeper conversations. Right. So we're not making ourselves as vulnerable to people around us as maybe has been in the past. Yeah. And uh-huh. that's because uncertainty goes, you know, early in relationships, uncertainty is high, means we can tolerate a small range of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. As that uncertainty goes down, as that relationship gets deeper and, and closer, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. Ah, right. Right? But if we see uncertainty bouncing all over the place, it's really uncomfortable to be more vulnerable. Right. So uncertainty times vulnerability equals risk. So everybody's little high on the risk scale. Most of it's us like are bouncing. Most everything's a high stakes game these days, right? It feels that way because even yeah. in a conversation like you and I are, I'm on an island off the west coast of Canada and you're in New York. Yeah. And, you know, it feels like, wow, if I say the wrong thing here, it could be really bad. Uh, right. Right. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You no, know, no one wants to, you don't want, and it's not like I use this term, you don't want to offend people, but. I don't know if offend is the right term. You may have a better word. Um, it's good enough. It yeah, works. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because then it makes things like you're walking on eggshells all the time. And then people's stress levels go up. And from my standpoint, pain levels go up. Yeah. Uh, my own pain. And you may have the same kind of, I don't know what your post-concussion syndrome was like, if that was associated with any whiplash type neck pain, things like that. But, you know, everything tends to go up. Our stress levels go up. Cortisol levels go up. And right. so what can we do as individuals then to help build back trust? And and if enough individuals can build back trust, does it have a ripple effect or is it not it like, does. is that not a thing? Oh, it does. It does. Okay. It does. And this is why I wrote the book. Um, because I, so I was working with leaders and working with students and, you know, I was teaching in Luxembourg, um, and I had a student, so this has happened several times, but the example I like to give is I had a student who said, because all my students had to apply the concepts, right? So your task for this course is to apply and report. And so pick someone you're going to practice with. And this guy chose his two sons who were five and three. He said, I'm completely alienated from them. I've been working in Brazil for almost their entire lives. I get around them. I get nervous. I'm anxious. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. It's always the wrong thing. Uh, I lose my temper. I yell. He said, they're terrified of me. Hmm. The end of three months in our course, he 
been shown the model and walked through it. And I'd coached him some, and we'd had some conversations. His final report was everything has completely changed. My children run to me. They throw themselves on me. They tell me they love me all the time. They fight over who gets to sit next to me at dinner. I was having that kind of impact on a regular basis, but I feel like I'm dropping grains of sand in the ocean. What I need is people like you and your listeners to come alongside and help me pick up great big rocks because we can all get better at building trust. It's a skill we all have. It's a skill we can all improve no matter how good we are at it. So it can be practiced is what you're saying. Absolutely. And that's what I do is skill building. And there's a lot of people talking about trust, but they're not talking about what to do about it. And that's that's what the book is about. That's mm-hmm. what the courses are about. It's, it's what I'm about is trying to make the world a better place by helping people better understand what trust is and how it works. Amazing. And now just so I know we kept saying the book. So I just want to say the name of the book. Right. Build, that would be helpful. Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Um, and where can people find the book Anywhere if they online. want to purchase it? Perfect. Yep. So any and- Amazon or... Yep. Barnes and Noble well, online. Is that still a yep. thing? Your website? So. My website. They can go to my website, trustunlimited.com. Uh, there's a, it's available as an ebook and as an audible book. Oh, nice. And yeah. And then if, if they feel inspired, there's a masterclass that's on my website. It's about three hours in length. It's five minute segments that people mm. can go through and practice their skills and exercises there and role plays. I'm really trying to teach people the vocabulary. Because once we've got the same vocabulary, it makes a profound difference in the way we can talk with each other. Right, right. Oh, that makes so much sense. It's all in our words matter. They do, right? And when we start talking about benevolence, you start thinking about some of your client interactions. You're like, oh, I've actually got a slightly different perspective on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know I need to pull that lever. And then when you start thinking about integrity, it's like, what are the values? How do I express them? How do I tell the story that says, remember when I told you at the start of our engagement that this is what I was about? Well, this is me doing that. Mm-hmm. And so being articulate about and intentional about pulling those levers. Yeah. And, you know, as we start to wrap things up, what would you like the listeners, what is your the big takeaways from the conversation today? I mean, I've got a lot, but I don't want to speak for you. Right. So trust is something we can do something about. Mm. That's that's the main one. And 95% of people believe they're more trustworthy than average, which is not only statistically impossible, it creates a problem, right? It, it means that if I see a trust problem, I assume it's somebody else's fault and I don't engage. Mm. And so I I wish people would buy the book, read the book, not just read it, but start applying it. And start thinking about how do I be more intentional about the relationships around me? It's how we future-proof ourselves and those we love Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. against uncertainty that's still yet to come. Right. And, and there's a whole lot of that these days. Um, So to be able, like you said, to future-proof yourself, to give yourself some tools to be able to work through the uncertainty of this world, but still have the people around you, yeah. trust you and yeah. you trust them back i'm assuming it's not just a one way street right absolutely and th- so there's a a reciprocal nature to trust mhm and one of the 
primary things that I tell leaders is you should go first. Lead with your imperfections. Because when we do that, we give other people permission to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. One of the things I would encourage every leader who's listening to do is to say to their people, what would have made me a great leader 10 years ago? It's not the same thing that would make me a great leader today. And what will make me a great leader three years from now is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And to be a great leader, which is what I want to be, I'm going to have to try new things. I'm going to have to explore. I'm going to have to experiment. I will stumble. I may fall. When I do, my expectation is that you will be there supporting me, helping me learn from those mistakes, because that's exactly what I'm going to do for you. Great. Hopefully people listen to that over and over again. They can write it down. It's a great speech. So if you're a CEO, you're a team leader, you're a student leader, you're a leader in your organization, professional organization, that is a great couple of sentences to, so write it down, everybody, write it down. I love it. I love it. Now, one more time, where can people find you? So go to trustunlimited.com and there's a blog section there with, with a few articles and some podcasts. It's also access to my masterclass there in the courses section. You can see my guide dog, Drake. If you look in the about section, mm-hmm. he's he's the director of goodness, the DOG. Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> and, and you can reach out to me at Daryl at trustunlimited.com, D-A-R-R-Y-L at trustunlimited.com. Perfect. And before I let you go, uh, last question. It's one I ask everyone. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old-ish self? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know, when we're in our late teens, early 20s, there's a lot of change going on. Talk about times of uncertainty, right? Exactly. And the rules are changing. And I feel for the for the folks in that age bracket now. Mm-hmm. Because the world is changing so rapidly and it's so hard for them to find purchase. It's going to be okay. Great advice. Well, Daryl, thank you so much. This talk on trust was, it was not un, not anything I expected um, in, in the best possible way. Um, I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. You're very welcome. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.